0: This is Oblivion with David Miller and David Overby. Well, it's May 4th, 2020. Uh, It's currently, well, the thermometer says 80 degrees. Outside, sunny and beautiful. Spring day here. Uh, Here at Buzzard Roost. And uh, uh, David, I think, is done getting his coffee now. Uh, in the meantime, uh, I just got back myself from my, uh, well, it was three and a half weeks ago, I went to Kroger, and I spent $350. I am back. You? Yeah, I spent $350, uh, I already did the intro, um, on groceries three and a half weeks ago. And I spent four hundred eighty-four dollars today. <laughs> I think we're, the, we're the set a gone up? huh?
1: The meat has gone up.
0: <laughs> no, I just bought an incredible amount to stock up, so we're set for at least another month. <clears throat>
1: yeah. well, that's a uh, smart. That's a smart move because it's gonna. All of this is gonna get even worse <laughs> in the coming food. month.
0: It's kind of amazing, toilet paper is is still like non-existent. I talked to somebody at Kroger, the employee, and she was like, well, it's been that way since, you know, uh, since the beginning of the crisis, you know. And um, But I did get some, and it was the advantage of being tall uh, it was like there was one. It was actually my brand. It was the only package of toilet paper left on all the shelves. This huge, long, 50 foot long, double high shelf unit. And uh, but I was able to see that there was this package of Scott's toilet paper in the very back of the of the um, upper tier. And I was just able to reach it. I guess I was the only reason it was there is because nobody could reach it. So I did get toilet paper. They're hiding it from people, well, no, it just sells out. I guess what happened was that you know they production you know they have these vast warehouses where they stock up you know and stuff, and I guess they just cleared out the warehouses, and actual production doesn't keep up with demand, and they just I think they do get it, but it just sells out instantly, you know <clears throat> and they get limited quantities. But they were also totally out of flour, which is kind of bizarre. I didn't think people baked that much, but apparently so. But um, yeah, there was a fair, fair amount of uh, mask wearing out there. Um, Yeah, I'd say at least half of people, maybe even more now. Seems like maybe even more compliance. Last time I was there, so
1: social distancing.
0: Um, yeah, I think people were pretty mindful of that, and uh, so it seemed all right. You know, there weren't any protesters protesting the whatever <laughs> to die young. This was the protest. <clears throat> Or die old. The Constitution old.
1: gives me the right to, <laughs> to die young and to kill as many people as I can in the process. Yeah,
0: i will take a bunch of you with me. Yeah.
1: No no doubt it says that somewhere in the Bill of Rights.
0: So uh, you've got Kent State down on your uh, list. What's that about?
1: Well, the day is May the 4th.
0: Oh, I see. And uh, was it 71 or 2? 1970.
1: Oh, that's the 50th. Wow. Um, Back in uh, January, I actually had plans to uh, visit and stay with uh, uh, friends of mine there, and uh, Neil Young and David Crosby were going to be there to perform
0: Hmm.
1: because it's the you know the 50th anniversary and all. Of course, Mm -hmm. that isn't going to happen. So. Mm
0: So you say you were probably going to be there today. The plan was, and it was going to be. Yep. Hmm. Yeah. They, did they cancel it? You know, or I guess they did. Well, of course. Yeah. Well, they, they probably have some should. online thing that they're doing. You know, they've musicians have started doing like their own online. You know. Well, who cares? I
1: mean. <laughs> I'm not there and I'm not going to get to see Neil Young and David Crosby uh, in person, which would have been pretty cool. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to, of course, get to see my friends who that was even more important. Mm -hmm. And I was going to go to this one bar on Franklin street called the Venice, which is uh, one of the few bars anywhere that I know of that has Molson on tap. And I was going to, have some Molson on tap, and who knows who else I might have run into. Of course, none of those things is going to happen. Um,
0: well, I guess if you get start getting towards Canada, you you probably start seeing more Molson on tap.
1: Yeah, when I was in uh, Vancouver, they, they had it. It was uh, pretty available. Of course, when I was in Vancouver, I was on one of my uh, hiatuses from drinking alcohol, which I think, as you know, I, I take regularly. I don't, I don't ever quit drinking, but, uh, I personally enjoy taking extended time mm-hmm. off, which was actually my plan for this spring. I was, uh, I was going to hold off on the, on the alcohol until May, this time of year. And then when I went up to, you know, visit my friends, uh, I was going to enjoy drinking some beer and then uh, probably continue that for at least some of the summer, which I think, you know, summertime is uh, especially if you're visiting friends and uh, doing fun social things that you can uh, uh, have something to drink. So um, anyway, uh, I think tomorrow I may have some, uh, modelo especial for cinco de mayo.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh yeah.
1: <laughs> but one of the reasons that I brought up uh, that I brought up Kent State was uh, one, just in looking at the news feed, there was absolutely nothing about it and I think it's just something that Americans uh ignore and have willfully willfully forgotten. And and the other is that I think that really May 4th, 1970 was the beginning of a a 50-year civil war of the, the state against the people rather than, say, the North versus the South or the Union versus the Confederacy. And it's just incredible to me that you could actually have the National Guard Fire shots and bullets into a crowd of American civilians and American college students I mean it's not like these were prisoners who were had escaped <laughs> or you know people who were uh, you could assume were a threat. I mean none of these people were armed, some of them were throwing rocks, and of course some of the of these uh, war protesters had just lost friends in the Vietnam War, which is something people always deliberately forget. They think that the the protesters are just bums and they're troublemakers, and they don't ever acknowledge that, well, a lot of these people within the last month, within the last year, had had a good friend killed in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. and many of them were also facing the prospect themselves of having to possibly be drafted and and go there and then either kill people or get killed themselves. So that's all been ignored. But in the span of, I forget the exact numbers, but I I think it's something like in the span of about one minute, 61 shots were fired just into this general gathering of people and four people were killed, uh two young men and two young women and I think nine were uh wounded it may have It may have been more than that, but it's just a sign of how fascist uh America is that what happened at Kent State is deliberately ignored and neglected by the American people. And the, the other reason I bring it up is I see, in, in having read about it uh, a couple of articles yesterday, the, the characterization of the protesters as bums and the way that the, uh, the, the majority of Americans and the majority of locals overwhelmingly supported the, the shooting and killing of these protesters. You have to remember that as well. And it reminds me, I, I think it's basically the same thing today, with how Bernie Sanders and Bernie Sanders supporters are characterized. They're characterized as bums, right? I mean, they're people who just want to sit around, do nothing, and get the free stuff from the government.
0: You That's Bernie I mean. bro, Bernie man, but you just laid there in the basement smoking right. your dope.
1: Yeah, I want to sit on my dope, and the government sucks, and <laughs> I want to live off that, you know, government uh, nipple. Uh, you know, meanwhile, <laughs> 700- <laughs> billion taxpayer bailout for uh, Wall Street and the investment banks. And then since we've had this uh, coronavirus pandemic that shut down the economy, there's been trillions of dollars that the government has given uh, to the economy. Overwhelmingly, surprise, surprise, most of it has been gobbled up by big businesses who, who don't need it. But, of course, they're going to exploit the the situation and, and get this money anyway, making the argument that they need the money just like everybody else, and you can't discriminate against them. So I, I just think that the, the parallel between the characterization of the protesters at Kent State on uh, May fourth, 1970 as bombs and the characterization of Bernie Sanders and his supporters today uh, as as well as the uh, if you if you look at nineteen seventy to two thousand twenty and the this the the onslaught of um and the assault basically of the state against the people in terms of the wars fought the the financial uh stress on people the stagnation of wages in spite of uh, increased productivity. And, of course, look at the prison population, right? The prison population skyrocketed uh, starting right around 1970. It started going up in 1970 into 1980. And then, of course, with the Reagan Revolution, it really started to spike. And then when Clinton and, and Joe Biden became uh, a big player in Congress. it skyrocketed even more in the nineties and it 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 has it has leveled off, but it hasn't gone down so uh, I don't see why we can't characterize the the shootings of Kent State as the beginning of a civil war uh, um, uh, in any case the, the fact that it, it is just so uh Willfully ignored and forgotten what happened on that day, I think, is a real indictment of the character of the American
0: people. And it makes me think of Chris Hedges. Um, I saw an interview with him recently on Jimmy Dore's show, and uh, <clears throat> of course, he he said he, you know, predicted that the Bernie what, what would happen to Bernie, and of course, he did it last time. He had a back in, I think it was February of
1: Of course I predicted the, that too
0: right and and anyway so he was right about that and he was going on about i mean he, about his prediction it's going to go straight fascism where uh you know that they're coming for you now too suggesting that i don't know the white middle class is going to now be attacked like you know the black folks or Leftists or whatever um, <clears throat> I'm not sure if i I don't really buy that i don't I don't think that will happen um, you know they may increase you know their oppression of black people or this and that, but um I don't think that <clears throat> at least I don't see it any time soon that they would turn on their base of support of white prosperous middle class people well, why not? Well, because I, I, it's them, you know, uh, that support the system. It's like these bourgeois, <clears throat> for lack of a better term, um, mostly white, uh, intellectual type or professional types. You know, they're the ones that are kind of behind the billionaire class system. You know, to give consent to it, they're the ones that have the most money and. Influence and such, and I don't think that they'll turn on themselves. Uh, but um, I may be wrong.
1: Yeah, I think you're definitely wrong. I mean, I, I think that this has well, I mean, already happened.
0: In what in what way?
1: Well, I just think that it's.
0: it's you're saying uh, that it's the obvious. the privileged um, class of, class that I'm talking about, they've been oppressed all of a sudden, and the forces of the state. Are going against them? Well, well, yes. I mean,
1: I, I think I think that um, I mean the the billionaires themselves haven't turned on themselves because they're the ones who are really in power. But if, if you're talking about the the spread of, I mean, you know, fascism is like a virus; it it spreads, and it and I mean that's why it's so. Uh, it that's why it's so catastrophic to civilization, because it, it starts out gaining acceptance by getting the majority to think that it's only a minority that's going to be oppressed. But there's a famous quote about fascism, and I'm, I'm pretty sure that you've heard it, and it goes something like this. Um, at first, they came for the communists, but I didn't do anything because I wasn't a communist. Then they right. came for the Jews, mm-hmm. but I didn't do anything because I'm not a Jew. Then they came for the uh, then they came for the intellectuals, and I didn't do anything because I wasn't an intellectual. Then they came for me. and By then, there was nobody uh, to, um, to 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 uh, stand up for me. Mm-hmm. And you you seem to be operating with the assumption that this this fascism. This obviously crazed and maniacal, warped uh, agenda and and uh, and and mindset is somehow rational, and it isn't. And and it's the same way it's, it's working here, where you know first it's like if if we're if we're going to start with the idea that May the fourth, nineteen seventy, was the beginning of a fascist civil war between the state and consolidated power versus the people, it gained traction by saying, here's what we want to do. We're going to crack down on all the bums, the war protesters, the dope smokers, the freaks, the slackers, the weirdos, the homosexuals, and of course the blacks and the Hispanics, which is where reefer madness all all started out all of these undesirable people and we're going to really start to crack down on them and that's why it was so popular right and then nixon started it uh reagan came in and really fortified it and made it formalized and entrenched in the bureaucracy of the system you know we're war on drugs you know we're we're going we're not going to take away your alcohol We're not going to take away your martini, your glass of red wine, your beer while you're watching sports. We're going to go after people who smoke pot. And then that's the gateway drug. And, you know, if you're a Wall Street investor, you're going to – you can sort your line, but the black people who are smoking crack and the poor white people who are smoking crack from Queens, we're going to bust them. And so it continues to be popular.
0: Well, and and, and who was it that was behind that – uh, the, the crack disparity. Uh, Joe uh, Biden, what <laughs> a lot of, what
1: a trooper man. And the and the Democrats, and so was Bill Clinton. I mean, those are the people. Everyone says it's always the Republicans who are the bad guys, but it's, it was Bill Clinton and Joe Biden who really put the pedal to the metal when it came to the war on drugs and really getting those prisons filled up. And I remember this because I was graduating from college and really making my entryway into early adulthood you know, during the the early '90s, and of course, naively, foolishly thinking that oh, we've got it—we finally have a Democrat as president for the first time in twelve years. Things will be different, and of course, they were different. They got worse.
0: Well, and I'm sure I've told this. Before the first time I ever saw Clinton, anything about him was the early, prim, you know, primary Democratic primary debates. And it was a pretty mm-hmm. big field, as I remember. It was like six or eight people or something uh, were competing for it, and I remember it, him just standing out as obviously the most conservative of the whole batch. Right. And you know, this right. was a, this was a time. When was that? Ninety one. So I mean I was yeah. still a young man, didn't have a heck of a lot of of um you know, political sense or whatever, but it was just so glaringly obvious, you know, to me mm-hmm. and sure enough, I mean what what are you gonna get? I mean, it wasn't even being hid that he was a right winger. You know, they played their southern strategy well to go hardcore right wing, you know.
1: Right, and and speaking of, um, did, did you say uh, Southern strategy? Yeah, yeah. Less. Well, and and think about what that ticket was. It's Bill Clinton from Arkansas and Al Gore from Tennessee. You know, you didn't see anybody from California or Oregon or Vermont. Right. Yeah. On that on that ticket, and I don't think, I mean, we've had we've had two, unless I'm overlooking something, we've had two Democratic presidents. Clinton from Arkansas and then the Obamacon from Illinois.
0: No, he's from Africa,
1: David. Oh, or from he's <laughs> not he's not from Africa. He's isn't he from <laughs> Afghanistan?
0: <laughs> he was yeah. a member of <laughs> Yeah, he was a cave in Toralboro or whatever. He's from he's from <laughs> that
1: country called Africa.
0: <laughs> yeah. Where they get to the yellow cake. But
1: anyway, just let me uh let me quickly wrap up my point about why I don't I think that Chris Hedges is is right and I think I'm right and I think that you're incorrect in, in the fact that this fascism is just gonna um subsume practically the entire uh society is um, that I mean just as you saw with uh with Hitler and the Nazis in Germany, it began with you know, the only people that we're after are the Jews, right? And so that makes it popular, right? Because most people aren't Jewish. And so they say, sure, you know, we're the master race. We're really awesome. And these other people, uh, <laughs> these, these Jews are a minority, so we can scapegoat them. We'll blame all of society's problems, the collapse of the economy, the, the collapse of the great German nation. We'll blame it on them. And so they have the Holocaust, and everybody thinks it's great. But, of course, what happens is fascism is, is built around uh, fighting, right? And that the, you, the point of a human being, the point of a great nation is that you're a fighter and you must fight and the best fighter wins. So it never ends, right? You, you say, okay, we, we have we've, we've killed all of the Jews and now we're just this race of, of uh, good-looking, blonde, blue-eyed Aryan people. But, if you, but then it breaks down even further because within that group of blonde, blue-eyed Aryan people, there are going to be some who are better looking, stronger, more fit, tougher, stronger than the others, right? So they beat down the ones and destroy the ones who aren't as good as them. And so the, the group shrinks, right? And then within that group that remains, well, with, who's – some of us are better and stronger and better looking than the others. And so those people beat down the others, right? And it just, it, it never ends, right? It's, the, the problem with, with what you're saying is you're, you're looking at this, at this uh, ideology of fascism that is just, that is crazed and maniacal and, and evil. And you're at the same time saying that it has some, you know, rationality or, or good sense and it doesn't, and, the, and the, one of the obvious um, ways in which this fascism is going is to subsume everyone right now is what's happening with the economy, right? Is, so it, it's far more people than just your bums, your war protesters, and your thumb-up-their-ass uh, dope smokers with the bong duct tape to their lips um, who are in financial trouble. Right, you have 30 million people are are unemployed, and and at least half of those 30 million people don't have any health insurance at the time that we're facing a a deadly pandemic. Yeah. Right. So just think about how many horrible things are uh, are going to happen. I mean, there's no way that they're not going to happen. It's like watching a tidal wave come at you on the Poseidon.
0: Well, but, I mean, yes. what,
1: what are you imagining
0: will be happening?
1: Well, just let me let me read you uh, this this quote. Uh, uh, when I was when I was going through my news feed, one is I was just looking to see if there was going to be anything on there about Kent State fifty-fiftieth year anniversary of it. Right. Nothing, nothing wasn't mentioned at all. But there was an article about the the rent crisis. Right, all these people are renting. And of course, for years, uh, for, for years, the uh, uh, the housing situation in the United States has been really bad. Uh, so let's see, um, where did where did I? Yeah, even before the pandemic, a, a significant percentage of Americans were struggling to pay rent. Most Americans were spending at least half of their income on rent. We Before the pandemic, we had many people, especially in our bigger cities like uh, San Francisco and Seattle, who had jobs but still had to live in their cars. All right, This is before the pandemic. Um, because of the 2008 economic meltdown, when the Obamacan went out of his way to make sure that the rich people stayed propped up, and he did nothing to help the people, Right, nothing. Uh, that means uh, we basically stopped building housing in 2008. So that means that most Americans don't have any option other than to rent. Um, so let's see, thousands of newly homeless people and thousands of empty apartments will create a situation that benefits neither renters nor landlords nor cities. Did you, did you get that? Because that's what's going to happen. And what people don't understand is, well, one, first of all, this idea that one check for uh, $1,200 is not going to be adequate to, uh, to compensate for or to, uh, to, to mitigate against the incredible financial stress that people are under. But another thing that people don't understand is that the, the idea, that this idea of that you don't have to pay rent, all that means is that rent is being suspended. Sure, It yeah. doesn't mean that you're not going to have to pay it. So as as soon as these moratoriums on rent end, all of it will be due. So you're going to say, okay, well, you don't have to pay your $2,000 rent this month. And so people say, fine, cool, great. You know, the system works, which is what Americans always want to believe while the world around them is on fire. Everything is fine. Everything is great. So they don't have to pay rent. But then let's say they don't have to pay rent uh, this month either. But uh, let's say that the moratorium runs out in July or August. You know, it, it doesn't matter that the pandemic will be even worse.
0: Is there even a moratorium in Kentucky?
1: Well, I don't know, but I know that there, I don't there think so. are. Well, that's disclosed that that would make it even worse. <laughs> sure. Right. But yeah. I, I think that in in, the, in New York City, for example, and I think in some other big cities, there was at least one month of a moratorium. Yeah. But what people don't understand is, let's say that the moratorium ends in August. Yeah. That means just like that, July.
0: Well, there. It's not just that. Of course, it's also mortgages too.
1: Right. Um, All of that's going to be due.
0: Yeah. All of that's going to be due. So, so that true. then then what? So then. You, you, there you are going to be riots or something, or? And then you well, think, think, gonna think the be, National Guard is going to come out and gun them down for You know, I mean, I'm just trying to imagine what the hardcore fascist future you're imagining you know well let me me, what do you think is going to happen well I mean I I think that there could be violence Um, you know it's a possibility Um, you know uh, I mean it's a two way street though I mean you know a lot of these uh, um, you know for instance I can sit on my moral high horse and my one rental property, you know, uh, had just suspended rent and it doesn't have to be paid back, you know, it's whatever they call that, furloughed or... um, Forgiven. It's just forgiven, yeah. I called it rent jubilee when I told him. So, I mean, uh, he hasn't had to pay it this month or last month and it'll probably have to go through the next month too, you know, but... uh, before we have to start considering something, you know, because at some point, I can't afford that, or I mean, I can't do that forever. Um, And that's what I'm saying about the businesses. I mean, if they don't make some kind of accommodations, you know, every, you know, every person, you know, with a rental place, I'm I'm sure this would happen with the big ones, big corporations that have hundreds of spaces, you know, they don't give a shit. But, you know, the smaller people, You'd think that they would try to figure out a way to, you know, uh, keep their renters in there, you know, but uh, I think it'll be a mix, though, because there's definitely going to be the hardcore capitalist corporate uh, rental places. And, of course, the mortgages, too, they'll probably be even more hardcore because they're fucking banks and <clears throat> they just don't tend to be nice, <laughs> you know, about that payments and shit. Um Right. So, yeah, it's going to be a shit storm. And, you know, you can predict that, I definitely would say that the Democrats are going to step up and bail out the people, you know. Of course not. Or at least to to such an insulting amount that, you know, then the Republicans can just, you know, claim that they're doing better than them, which is pretty much true at this point as far as helping people out. <laughs> and, uh, so, yeah, it's unbelievable, yeah, that's well, why I'm just not sure what's gonna happen with the election because it's just like it's so crazy, you know um, it seems like it could go, could go bad either way, you know, not that either one would be uh, much different um, well and i was- and i was I was thinking about uh you were making a Comparison with Nazi Germany, and you know, I'm kind of hesitant to do those kind of things because they're just different times, radically different societies, and and I, it made me think of you know when Chomsky was doing his quadrennial lesser evil voting um, campaign. <clears throat> I remember him talking about it that he said that you know the you know the Weimar Republic, you know the Communists, you know, were, I don't know what term he used, he didn't use purists, but were, you know, unwilling to have any truck with the rest of the parliament, so they didn't vote or whatever, and, and insinuating that Hitler rose because they didn't participate. Um, right, I mean, they, so, they didn't I mean, compromise. They didn't, right, they didn't compromise or weren't part of... Uh, whatever votes there were before Hitler took power. And uh, but you know, and but yeah, you know, the situation was just crazy. And, you know, it's like the the three main groups, like the socialist communists and the social democrats and the Nazis you know, they all had militias, and there was constant violence on the streets, and they were fighting each other. with militias. <laughs> you know, it was way crazier it than nowadays. A lot
1: like gun violence in America, which we don't.
0: We yeah, but it's basically not, become it's totally unorganized. It was organized there. It was like these parties had their own militias. You
1: know? Well, um, here, let's, I, I see what you're saying, but um, the it's not going to be. Identical. It's not going to be exactly like Nazi
0: Germany. Well, and I think that's maybe the nuance that I'm getting at is that <clears throat> I get the sense when Chris Hedges talks that that's the kind of thing he's talking about—is like the military, like uh, stuff you know that we regularly do to the brown people, the Middle East or whatnot, uh, mm-hmm. of Africa, you know. Mom them at will, that sort of thing. Um, He seemed to to me, maybe I'm uh, not being accurate with this, but suggested that was going to be turned on all of us now. So, uh, you know, maybe, I hope not, uh, but I think it would be something more mild than that. But... uh, and, you know, you never know. I mean, there'll be opportunities that will arise from, uh, I mean, just like in the Great Depression, you know, of course, again, different times, so um, different things will happen, but when we have a Great Depression-level event, uh, uh, economic collapse, I mean, you know, it does open opportunities for um, radical change Now, um, I think there is a pretty good argument that the culture is just much worse for that kind of thing, Uh, that um, the left has been so marginalized for so long in this country, uh, unionizing such that there's going to be a big learning curve for the masses to be able to organize that way.
1: Right, that's and I think, as I've said in previous podcasts, the reason that I don't think that there'll be any positive change as a result of both the pandemic and the economic collapse that we're under is that the skill set is absent from the culture to be able to enact such positive change. I mean, the ability to articulate one's thoughts. <laughs> the ability to to reason and to understand what is happening and to think independently of the relentless propaganda that tells you only the market can determine the value of a human being. Only rich people have the right to say what everything should cost and what people are worth, Um, as, as well as the the basic logistics of of being able to organize and to stay organized and to and to be confident and to have conviction in a singular point of view and purpose and as we saw from the uh from the 2016 primary and again from the 2020 uh democratic primary and I'm talking also about the 2016 democratic primary is that It would be one thing if it was just the Republicans and the conservatives and the evangelicals who were so anti-anything, quasi-left-leaning. But but it isn't. It's at least 90% of the culture. I mean, Democrats, people who identify as liberals and feminists, college educated people i mean people who despise donald trump and who uh, are as far away from the culture of fox news as you can be even these people absolutely despise uh, any kind of left leaning thought or or politics and that's what i'm talking about with the spread of fascism is that even in this other segment of the population that is not conservative, or at least doesn't identify conservative, even these people believe in a hierarchy. Even these people believe there are some people who are better than other people.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Right. And of course, who's, each individual person, who do they think is at the top of the hierarchy? Well, it's them. I'm better than that other person. I'm smarter. I'm harder working. I'm more socially adjusted. I understand all of the nuance and subtlety of how to navigate society. I'm really good on the Internet. As, as you put it uh, so wonderfully one, one time before you got off of Facebook, um, I know how to bravely sit around on Facebook and fight for social change. <laughs> I mean, just that kind of idiotic, cowardly thinking is so widespread. And of course, that is at the root of fascism, is cowardice, mm-hmm. right? That people are just so insecure. They can't, they can't um, put their ego in perspective. Their whole uh, ontological existence is wrapped up in their ego. and And you're doomed to be an insecure person if that's how you think. And if that's how you you identify yourself in relation to other people, right? You must always be superior and better. You must be better than the other person. Like you, you cannot accept your humanity, right? You you despise your own humanity, and of course, that's what fascism is. That's why those. Pe- that's why the Nazis not only didn't have any doubts, or th- they obviously didn't think, "Oh my God." Uh, why are we actually doing this to other people they loved it i mean they put they starved those people they worked them to death they put them in those uh, gas chambers and killed them and this you know walked around in these death camps with these uh, corpses and these uh, these uh, emaciated uh, bodies and they just thought it was great you know and the only way you can do that is to believe that there really is no humanity Right, you're not human. You're
0: a German. You're well, I mean, to be accurate, to rank. be accurate, it wasn't it wasn't an open thing. It was a very hidden thing um, <clears throat> from the public. You know, I mean, every people people knew things bad things were going to happen to the Jews. You know, that they <clears throat> were sending them off, but uh, you know, general population didn't quite know. You know, like the Nazi doctors, what they did, but Anyway, but well, but it uh, still
1: happened. I, I'm just yeah, talking about the right. mindset that you know. I'm I'm not part of the human race. I'm part of the master race, and you're not yeah. a human being. Right. You're a Jew, or you know, you're a bum. Yeah, you're,
0: you're, I, a, I you're think I think it would be hard to. You know, I think it's it's clear that even though this is a racist or classist culture, that it's not nearly so extreme uh, as. Nazi Germany, where it was just—I <clears throat> mean, it was racism to the tenth degree. I mean, it was like, <clears throat> you know, I don't. Uh, uh, so, I mean, that would make me think of—it's less likely to be such such a harsh situation if if uh, fascism takes root, like you and Chris are thinking it will, or already yeah. has. <clears throat>
1: Well, um, but, uh, I know we. At uh, least I hope are, I'm
0: right on that. I mean,
1: well, I, I here's the thing. I hope that that you're right too. But um, before we uh, move on to something else, there there are a couple of important parallels that I that I that I think have to be brought up between Nazi Germany and America in in 2020. Um, one is that the rise of of the Nazis in Germany came in the aftermath of an economic collapse right right, right. i mean the, in in 1929 the nazi party in germany was irrelevant i think it had you know 8% of the population was yeah, yeah. a member of the nazi party right. nobody cared nobody was interested in these ideas yeah. um then you have the the uh, collapse of the economy in october of 1929
0: The entire world
1: economy collapsed, and within four years, Adolf Hitler rises to become the leader of of, of Germany. Uh, The other parallel is militarism. Now you're you're certainly not going to deny that America isn't driven by militarism. We fight wars. You know, we've been we've been in in Afghanistan for 19 years. We had an Iraq war that officially ended in 2011, but of course it's still going on. People are still there and and getting killed and and dying. We had the rise of ISIS, the you know Iraq and Syria Islamic State in 2014. That was another bloodbath that everybody's just ignored and forgotten about on purpose. We then we had uh, the Obamakan starting wars in Yemen, which is still going on, and uh, also Syria and, and Libya. So you have economic collapse, and you have militarism and war. Those are undeniable parallels. I mean, those are facts. This, this is not ideological theory. This, these are basic facts in reality. Right. <laughs> and then the third parallel is media, right? You think about Goebbels, and propaganda, and that they were really, the the Nazis were the first people, and of course, it's it's that technology of the early 20th century, when you had radio, you had, you know, visual, you know, television, you know, film, as a way to propagate a message, and to influence the population, and of course, you're one of the people who, and I think you are accurate, I don't 100% 100% agree with the way that you depict how it works, the dynamics, but I think you are correct in that, the, that media and uh, propaganda have a strong influence on how people think. Now, the Nazis used uh, propaganda through Goebbels' uh, propaganda campaign, mm. and in America, you have Trump using Twitter. You have Fox News. You have a culture that is immersed in the internet, and cable news. So those three things, you know, economic collapse, war and militarism, and pervasive media, I think are, uh, all make a strong case for the fact that while it's not happening in the identical way, and while there are, of course, some differences in both the culture and the society and the time period, uh, I think that by and large, you see the, the onset of of, uh, of fascism. I think that fascism is already here. I mean, I think that that America went went full-on fascist during the uh, Bush-Cheney administration. I mean, you know, not doing anything to stop the attacks of September 11th.
0: Uh, I think I would go further back. I think World War II is pretty much the <clears throat> beginning of the current era because, you know, First of all, we took up all the total war um, military ideals of, of Hitler and applied it, you know, liberally uh, then and ever since, you know. Um, bombing civilians and killing civilians massively and <clears throat> attacking acts of aggression on countries, you know. It's been pretty continuous since then, you know, since the empire started. So, um we imported I, fascism from Germany. Well, I think we outdid them. You know, I mean, we we were the, we were the <laughs> you know the bigger the bigger of uh, Nazis and the real. They were the <clears throat> they were the vanguard. They were the test run. And We well, but yeah. well,
1: sure. I mean, I would I would agree with that. Uh, but but at least but in, I mean, I would say, in terms of foreign policy. Mm um it this all of this began right after the end of of, of World War yeah. 2 but, but domestically which is what I think uh mm-hmm. Chris hedges and I are talking mm-hmm. about like this is going to come domestic home domestic turn. Yeah. and you know you, the the argument that well why did we have to occupy Iraq why did we have to get granular in in Iraq and people say well this was a preparation really for uh, another and bigger war and it's like yes you know they 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 learned how to occupy and become granular the military in, in Iraq so that they could learn how to do it and then do it where? Well in the United States. Uh-huh. You send, you know, thousands and thousands of of troops and military experts and intelligence operatives into this foreign country. You learn how to occupy its government, install your own people, learn how to control the population, you know, figure out what's going to go wrong, see what kind of uprisings, see what kinds of, uh, of complexities and fissures there are within the local uh, culture, like the, the tensions between the Shiites, the Shia, and the Kurds. How do you uh, either negate that or use it to your advantage? uh pit them against each other or somehow get them all to cooperate with you or consolidate their power uh, uh whatever the strategy is you you learn and you study all of this and then eventually you you let it loose in your homeland
0: so uh a lighter subject you have women's soccer on here
1: well, yeah, I was going to transition and, and say, but you know, Americans can think that they always believe in in equality and fairness because they don't think that millionaires have enough money. <laughs> I believe that, that the millionaires need more money. <laughs> I believe in equality. I mean, if that isn't fascism, does you that know, I mean that the professional athlete, whether she's female or whether he's male, is the quintessential Aryan specimen, right? The fastest, the strongest, the toughest, the one with the stamina, I will not give up. No matter how much pressure, no matter how difficult the game is, no matter how much pressure there is, I will perform. I will perform, I will win, I will take down my opponent. I will kick the ball. Look at me
0: kick the ball. I am not worth 2 million, I'm worth 3 million. I think you'd be more accurate to do be doing a rap version of that. Um,
1: well, I, don't, I can't really pull that off. <laughs> yeah, it's not fair. to that. do a rap version of it in, a, in a female voice. But so just because I know everybody's going to call me a misogynist and a, and a sexist, I do want to make this one qualifier in totally denouncing the, I think the entire thing about the U.S. women's soccer team Claim that they're underpaid and being treated unfairly is crazy and selfish and obscene. Especially with you know sixty-seven thousand people, nearly sixty-eight thousand people now dead of a pandemic, and thirty million people unemployed. And you're a millionaire, and you're the one saying I should get the attention.
0: So, so I, I, I'm not even familiar with the story. Um, fill me in on it. <clears throat> Yeah, you're definitely the,
1: just the, a pig. Um,
0: <laughs> the, the, well, yeah. the, the
1: story of women's the, soccer, God. <clears throat> well, let me give you, yeah, it's probably good for the listener, uh, uh, too, just as, as concise yeah. as I can make it. Yeah. Um, and, and by the way, I'll have to do a plug for my most sports podcast where I talk about this more elaborately. You can go to www.facebook.com. Slash mopod.mosports and uh, join us on the Most Sports Podcast Facebook page. And I am Dr. Dave Overby, the CEO and uh, lead anchor of the Most Sports Podcast. We should be going public here in a few months, but anyway. Uh, so here's the deal the, the U.S. women's uh, soccer team dominates the, the Women's World Cup. Now, there have only been the, – the Women's World Cup didn't start until 1991. So they have it every four years. So I don't know. Let's see. There would be 91, 95, 99, uh, 03, 07, 11, um, 15, and then 19, which would have been last year, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, how, many, how many is that? That's um, – I'm counting on on one hand so that makes it kind of <laughs> hard. That's right. is that 8 of them?
0: Yeah, that sounds right.
1: Um well, I'll so, go let's go backwards. 19 fa- fairly successful. 15, 11, 7, 3, 99, 95, 90, yeah. So anyway, the the US women have won I think five. Hmm. And in the other three they were the world runner-up. Right, and so the argument is that the U.S. women's team is is awesome, and they dominate, mm-hmm. right? Whereas the men, on the international soccer scene, uh, uh, soccer uh, scene are bad. Mm-hmm. They many many years, I think, many years, they don't even they don't even they don't even make the World Cup. For example, in 2019, the reason that the men didn't qualify for the World Cup. Was that in a in a play-in game in a, in a game where they you start out playing in these uh, regional territories like uh, America was in a was in a bracket with with uh, Mexico for example and some other small countries well anyway the men lost to Trinidad and Tobago lost. The United States right with you know three hundred and thirty million people, so uh the men didn't even qualify for the for the World cup the women uh, of course not only qualified but they they dominated they their uh their first game in the world cup la- uh last year the women beat uh Thailand thirteen to nothing now in soccer you know a thirteen to nothing win is like winning a basketball game you
0: know a hundred
1: and twenty to to five, <laughs> to, yeah, to ten, yeah, right. It's just a, it's just an incredible dis- destruction. So, the, uh, the the U.S. um, soccer league or soccer organization, under the arrangements uh, that have been uh, made, they pay the men players more than the women players, right? And so the women are saying we dominate in women's soccer, the men uh, suck. So well, I know what they should players,
0: do. They should play for the money. Be like, the women should play against the men, and if they win, then the, all the money from the... <laughs>
1: Well, right, but that's yeah. the whole problem. I wonder, I wonder the, if they,
0: how they would fare. Do you think they'd still get beat against a poor male Well, that's the thing. Well, of course they would,
1: and everybody bro, knows yeah. it. And that's that's yeah. why this is such a, this is a, and you're you're good about uh, using this as a good descriptive word. It's a sham, mm. right? It's a it's a sham. It's what the U.S. women's soccer is fighting for: sham equality, right? The, this group of millionaires doesn't have as many millions as this other group of millionaires. That is sham equality. I'm equal pay, equal pay, which is what all of the neoliberal butt plugs were were shouting in the parade when the women's team came back from their victory um, uh, last summer. Uh, Equal pay, equal pay, you know, we're underpaid. So the star of the women's team is, is uh, Megan Rapinoe. I think that's how you say her, her name. It's spelled R-A-P-I-N-O-E. So it's Rapinoe or Rapinoe. I'm not sure exactly how you say it. But anyway, um, she's a really good soccer player. She's a really good women's soccer player. Her net worth as of last year is 2.2 million dollars. And I'm sure that's only gone up in the year since the World Cup when she's gotten endorsements. I think she was in the uh the swimsuit issue of the latest sports illustrated swimsuit issue, you know, showing off her amazing sculpted, you know, Aryan physique. So we're talking, you know, equality means that the that the person who kicks a ball around. Right? That's all she does. You're a soccer player, you run around, you kick a ball. And and come
0: now, now, they do knock it off their head too.
1: Uh every once in a while, yes. They do they do they do the headers. <clears throat> anyway, um so the women dominate the the men don't have nearly the success, but the men are paid more than the women and the women say that this is wrong. Mm-hmm. So Uh, This is all a a joke. It's a a sham. And the the reason for this is that internationally, no one cares about women's soccer. Why? Because outside of the United States, soccer, which the rest of the world calls football, in America, we call American football football, and we call football soccer. But in the rest of the world, um, the it is, you know, soccer is the number one sport, especially in South America and Europe. And so all of the resources, right, all of the best athletes in these countries play soccer, right? The Netherlands, Spain, Germany, Italy, France. I mean, these are all powerhouse, world-class uh, soccer teams because that is the sport so because in these other countries soccer is the number one sport what that really means is that men's soccer is the number one sport just like when we say in America baseball is the number one sport what we're really talking about of course is men's baseball or if we were going to say that basketball is the number one sport what we really mean by that is men's basketball so because men's basketball, for example, is the number one sport in the United States, no one in the United States really cares about women's uh basketball. Now, you're not really a big uh basketball head, but you could probably tell me the name of one uh professional basketball player, couldn't you? I mean just as a test, can you think of uh, a single name Rodney King? <laughs> <laughs> no? <laughs> wow! <laughs> was it, wasn't he
0: good with the billy club? No, he he received the billy club. Um, he he was a punching bag. Uh, anyway, right. yeah. So yeah, I mean, right and. Uh, so the,
1: well, anyway, just let me follow through on on this. Is that so? The the whole problem with this is that women, U.S. women, dominate internationally because they don't have any competition. The, these other countries that they're playing, they they care about men's soccer. They don't care about women's soccer. They do, it doesn't matter to them. You know, when they think about soccer, when they think about the World Cup, they think about the men's World Cup. That's what matters to them. In America, the only reason that the U.S. women's team is actually somewhat popular is that soccer is a secondary sport. So the men in the United States don't play soccer, right? Our best athletes play baseball. They play football. They play basketball because that's the culture. Those are the sports that are valued in the culture. Right, Nobody cares about men's soccer, plus the fact that our men are rarely competitive on the national scene. Now, in 2010, I, I, the men did make the World Cup, and I think that they even won their first match, and then they lost their next match. But, but since then, they, they haven't been back. I don't think they made it in 2015 or 2014, uh, and then they didn't make it in uh, in 2018 because – they lost to Trinidad and Tobago, and that <laughs> eliminated them from being able to have enough points to qualify. So it's it's a it's a very distorted and, and frankly dishonest representation of, of the issue. Uh, the, the, one of the reasons that the men make more women is that the overall the men's game, men's soccer, brings in considerably more money than the women's game because you have these international stars um like uh Lionel Messi and I don't know my soccer that that, that well but, but but Lionel Messi is one of the international uh superstars uh for uh for, for men's soccer I mean and again these all these teams that that, that I mentioned you know uh, Germany uh, Italy France uh, Spain and, and and the Netherlands I mean soccer is it. Like, it is big time and even last year I think it was um Oh who who was it um I think it was uh in the final it was uh it was France versus um I, I know I'm going to get this wrong uh and and uh I think I, I want to say uh Croatia was uh was the team that 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 made it uh that that made it to the uh to the final I I wish I I could remember it was a it was a central eastern uh, European uh, team anyway France uh, France beats them but the men's game is way more competitive because it has considerably more talent right the, the talented ad, the, the most talented athletes from all of these other countries from the time they're old enough to, to run around and do something with the ball they are put into playing soccer and um and so that's why the of course that makes it more entertaining because when you have lots of good players and lots of good teams that makes for exciting games see that isn't true for women's soccer right because in the Netherlands when they think of soccer they're thinking about the men's team uh, Ro- uh, uh rob or Robin is a is a name is a last name of uh, one of the star Dutch players from back in 2010 when the Dutch made it to the 2010 final against Spain and lost to Spain. Um, so that's just how, that's called real life. You know, that's called the, the the marketplace, right? And the market says that men's soccer is more popular and worth more money than the women's soccer. And it's like the women can't have it both ways. It's like the the same market-based uh, economics that says Megan Rapinoe was worth uh, $2.2 million because she's good at soccer is also the same marketplace that says the men get more money because the men's game is far more popular than the women's game. The rest of the world does not care about women's soccer. I mean, they, they're open-minded about it. You know, they're not, they're not against women's soccer, but they just don't care because it's not competitive. It's not interesting. And it, in any sport, not just women's soccer, in any sport, it is, it is easy to see when you, when you have a situation where the sport is not competitive, and that is when you see the same team win and dominate all the time, which is why the U.S. women uh, have won five of the eight World Cups, and they've been to the finals, I think, every single time. I think maybe one time they finished third, which means that they didn't make it to the final. But whenever you see results like that, it tells you, This is not a competitive sport, right? You have this one team or this one organization that takes it really seriously and and puts a lot of money and resources into it, and nobody else cares. And that's why this one team is always winning. Um, Whereas if you look at the Men's World Cup, uh, you do see uh, – you you always have your perennial contenders, but you don't see any one team dominate uh, like you do – in the women's game, so that is the reason that the men make more money uh, than than the women. The the men's game is is a far more competitive game, and and in just to follow up on that point, that that explains why the men struggle to uh, to win because they face much much stronger competition than the women do. So it is actually sexist. Paradoxically, it is it is a it is a sexist to sort of denigrate or depict the men as these uh, slacker losers because they don't do as well as the women because the men face much, much stiffer competition. You know, the the U.S. women get to play in a sport that the rest of the world does not care about.
0: Well, okay, man, uh, your uh, point about the inferiority of women is well taken. Okay, next thing on the list, um, uh, feudalism don't know what you meant by that. Um, did you have a transition from soccer to... Future? Well, sure.
1: I mean, that kind of just picks up on the, uh, all the earlier points that we were talking about, about, the, I think, the inevitable onset of, of uh, fascism domestically, is that um, this propaganda that says we're going to get through this and we're going to get through this together is a fairy tale. I mean our economy was already uh in 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 tatters. it was already had not recovered from the two thousand and eight meltdown before this pandemic hit and uh and now it's really been walled. so we are never going to go back to what we had before. Like, whatever you thought about it, like, it, you know, it was flawed, it was unfair, it was unequal, but, you know, it wasn't so bad. It is over. Uh, it's not coming back. And so um, it's going to transition to something else. There are two options. One is it's going to be a social welfare state where there will be something like a guaranteed universal income. You know, everyone will just get their $1,500 a month. Or we're going to go to feudalism. We're going to go backwards to feudalism. And of course, the the way that the the, uh, the prevailing trends and patterns over the last few decades just show everything keeps getting worse, everything keeps getting more oppressive, and the public just doesn't seem to care. They don't seem to put up any resistance to it because they're so obsessed with their egos and their sense of superiority to the other individual. They don't think they need any help um i i i think it's 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 uh, pretty much inevitable that we're gonna be heading back to feudalism, which means we're all gonna be ruled by some sort of regional or provincial um warlord <laughs> and we'll have to we'll have to work well i mean it's well, you can laugh but that's what's gonna happen
0: well. Uh, it's, it's it, it, bad, it, it, it makes some funny images when you say that because it's like uh, he's who's going to be the uh, or, the regional warlord of our region?
1: Okay, well think think of your your local badass redneck and then merge that image with uh, with a, with an Afghani in a turban and a big beard. <laughs> But who knows? I mean maybe Maybe it we'll is all funny. Get, you know, <laughs> may, maybe we'll all get to uh to you know smoke some really good opium.
0: I mean, <laughs> Learn from the best.
1: But one other thing that is uh is secondary to this, I'm gonna take a quick look through my notes and see if I can find uh uh what I had written down about all of this, I think most of this is just copied from. Anyway, um, the the universities, it's higher education. There's there is already one uh, small liberal arts college in Illinois. I can't remember the name of it, but it has closed for good. And okay. the predictions predictions abound that small uh, liberal arts colleges. Uh, in the Midwest and in the South, are going to close permanently because they, uh, they're they too expensive, they mm-hmm. don't have a high enrollment, they don't have a big endowment, and um, they're just, you know, they're, they, they were all they ready. They probably
0: but, got in debt and have built too many buildings and all that.
1: Right, and uh, so many of them are going to close, and I'm not kidding. It is a very real uh, possibility that um, many of the flagship schools are are going to close. E- they'll either they'll either close or they will be significantly downsized. And I, I believe this is something I talked about last week. But if there's no football, like at a, in um, in in college, that's going to cost these universities. $4 billion in revenue. The, the, the Power 5 schools, and those are the schools that belong to uh, the SEC, ACC, Big Ten, Big 12, and Pac-12 conferences. So you're talking about the California schools, Oregon,
0: Washington, Arizona,
1: Arizona State.
0: But I thought all the money was separate, Dave. Well, I mean, it is, it is separate, but in general, the
1: universities as a whole depend on this revenue to to function i mean how do you uh, how do you keep the, the if for no other if for no other reason because these universities have invested so much money in these sports right do you, do you follow me so if if the if the return on investment does not happen, you know I think of the fried chicken arena in Louisville mm-hmm. let's spend a billion dollars to build a basketball gym when we already have freedom Hall. You know the idea being, oh, this is going to be a big boom. It'll it'll revitalize downtown. Walk through downtown Louisville of all places, and you can just feel the electricity, the vibrance. Um, so, but but uh, but but uh, I know uh, this just happened uh, the, the other day. The University of Oregon, the president of the University of of Oregon, and the um, the um, uh, uh, Eli uh, uh, Capiluto, the president of the University of Kentucky, both made announcements that they uh, are planning to open in the fall. All right. Yeah. Now, why yeah. are they doing? That? You want to you want to take a guess as to why they're doing that? Why they're making these announcements now?
0: Um, so, so enrollment, uh, basketball. I don't know.
1: Well, yeah, you're you're right. Sports, and here's here's the thing: the the guy who is the uh, I, I wrote his name down, but I don't I don't I have my notes for today. I don't know where the other notes are. But the 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 president of the University of Oregon did an interview with CNN saying we're expecting to open in the fall. Okay, guess what he's wearing? He's wearing a sweater that has the sports logo, the the, the O for Oregon. On the left breast, and on the right breast is the Nike swoosh. All right, so that to tell you everything about why this is, why this is happening. If, if if schools like the University of Oregon and the University of Kentucky don't open in the fall, then there can't be any football, and if there can't be any football, you're not going to get that four billion dollars of revenue. See. So they don't give a damn if you bring all these students to campus and then in October there's a second or third wave of coronavirus infection and death and a bunch of people die. And then, of course, you have a hot spot. A campus is the perfect place for it. All these people are then going to disperse back into the general population for holidays like Thanksgiving and Christmas where they're inevitably going to be around, Grandma and Grandpa, they'll give it to them, and those people are going to die. I've got one last
0: uh, set of dazzling numbers for you.
1: Oh, we'll yeah. time for that. And do
0: you have the death toll? And have our way I to do. Death toll. Okay.
1: Death toll for May 4th. 2020, I'm just limiting it to the United States, 67,798. The infections uh, reported cases, 1,161,805. Now, here's something that jumped out to me when I compared the numbers to one month ago, which would be April before. Here are the Are are you getting this? Yeah. Listen to this. The the worldwide numbers one month ago are nearly identical to what the numbers in the United States are today. And let me give them to you. Here they are. Worldwide, one month ago today, deaths were 63,902. Today in the United States, it's uh, 67,798. Infections worldwide, one month ago today, 1,170,159. United States today, 1,161,805. Those numbers are nearly identical. In one month, the United States has the same number uh, uh, of infections and the death is actually 4,000 higher than the world had a month ago. And by the way, you want to know what the mortality rate is on those numbers? I give it. 6%. Yep. It's Graham. Oh, and 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 to break this number down here for you, uh, in the last thirty days, uh, in in the last thirty days, there's been an increase of fifty nine thousand five hundred and forty six deaths. That comes out to one thousand nine hundred and eighty four point eight deaths per day.
0: All right, man. Well, uh, on that happy
1: note. Do you have any predictions for next week? (laughs)
0: Uh, Nothing's really coming to mind. I mean, uh, let's see. I'll just hazard a guess that there'll be a new hotspot somewhere. That's what my prediction will be for this week. Well, the experts
1: have just said, and this is even people in the Trump administration have said that because um, everybody is foolishly relaxing their self-isolation, quarantine measures, um, that they expect 3,000 deaths per day by June. And of course it's not just Donald Trump and the Republicans that are the problem with this. Americans as a whole are so anti science. They're just they they're not gonna listen to it. I think I think it'll be fine. I think uh you, you got you've got the liberals that I think believe in a fairy tale. You know, no matter what, everything's gonna be fine, we're all gonna come together, Americans are good people, it's gonna work out. And you've got everybody else that is, does not believe in science. It's either, you know, I'm covered in Jesus' blood or this is all a bunch of uh, propaganda designed to shut down the economy. But I'm, my prediction is going to be that uh, by this time next week, you're going to start to see the beginning of, of, of mass evictions. So it's time to get that We Don't Dial 911 <laughs> sign on your door, Dave.
0: <laughs> well, all right. We'll see everybody next week. And, okay. Uh, and, uh...
1: This is send Dr. David W. Overby along with David <laughs> Miller for the Oblivion podcast here on May the 4th, 1970. Oh, I'm sorry. May the 4th, 2020. <laughs> Signing off. All righty. Talk to you next week. All right, man. Later.